forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I think I'm somehow getting worse at cutting my own bangs. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I love a smiley face. What do you, oh, like a little figurine? Yeah, I got like really into smiley faces. I think it's like a 90s nostalgia thing coming back. I, I want to just um, look like the Delia's catalog model that I, I wasn't allowed to be as a kid. Why weren't you allowed to be it? I had a uniform and I just like, I went into Abercrombie. I went into Limited 2. I tried to do the whole thing and like, it just never worked on me. I was just not. Ugh. I remember I really wanted a shirt from Abercrombie and Fitch because that was like how you were cool. But I didn't have any money. And so the ones that were inexpensive, I wanted it for summer camp. The ones that were inexpensive were just plain shirts that didn't really say, didn't say anything on them. So I had all these plain shirts that were expensive from Abercrombie. You couldn't even tell they were from Abercrombie, but I knew in my head they were. But I was like, well, nobody now nobody knows that I'm actually wearing the brand that is cool. I wanted those ones that were like said, you know, possibly offensive, fun things on the front. Co-ed naked lacrosse or whatever. I'm in sixth grade. <laughs> But I <laughs> but I could only afford the ones that were plain. So no one even knew I had the right stuff. So I was just failing all over the place. I'm sorry about that. I, I hope you you feel now that you're able to fully express yourself through through graphic tees. <laughs> I went to the mall. I actually went to the mall because my computer broke. And I was walking around. And I was like, one, I love the mall. I love the mall. A wild thing as someone who's anti-capitalist. And two, I was like, I'm an adult. I could go into Abercrombie right now. It's not in style. I could buy all the Abercrombie mm -hmm. I want. Even though it's not in style, I was like, maybe I should just like start buying stuff from Hollister because like, fuck it. All the things I wanted, I'll head right into limited too. When I see a Claire's, the idea that I could go into Claire's and I have money that I could buy the things I wanted from Claire's when I was in sixth grade and didn't have any money. Oh man, it's a You high. should go do it. Should I do it? It's not for anything. But Just I feel go like do it. These necklaces, I'm wearing these like like childish sort of beaded like smiley face necklaces that I got from American Eagle. I was like, I'm in seventh grade, but now I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> I had like khaki shorts that I had gotten from Limited 2. And I was just like, I just wore them in a way that I was like, everyone should see that it's from Limited 2. Like so, so, so trying and so sad. But now, maybe I'll just skip over to the mall and just, like, live my dreams. I think you should. Why not? Take care of your inner child, you know? Get my ears pierced at Claire's. Just tr truly do it up. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Mom and Dad. I'm 33. <laughs> this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty about preteen clothing and everything else. <laughs> yeah, head right into an icing. Get a bunch of ear cuffs, get a bunch of tube socks. No one can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do, and I still can't figure out how to put together an outfit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, this week on the show, we're going to be talking to Catherine Bob Majira all about her book, Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru. I want to say that 
I love anyone who comes on this show with an expertise in something obscure. I love when it's like this person knows everything about, you know, bacteria or this person knows everything about Edgar Allan Poe or this person knows everything about chimps. Like I want experts in things that it's like sort of a little bit like why? Well, I totally agree, but I have to put my foot down and we can never have an expert in bacteria on this show. Why? <laughs> because I can't know more about it. Got That's it. Got it. Got it. Very dangerous got it, got it. for me. I don't I can't know where the bacteria <laughs> is. I can't know what they're like. I can't know what they do. I have to remain ignorant of that. <laughs> okay, sorry. I just said it and I didn't mean it. We should get someone who like knows the history of Clorox wipes. Babe, no. (laughs) I was going to say we should get someone who knows a lot about 90s fashion or maybe just a therapist who's like, here's why your inner child needs nourishing. Yeah, either of those two options. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're also going to be discussing traveling later in the show. Is it important? Is it a personality trait? What are our thoughts on it? I think some people on Instagram think it is. But first, we have to answer a listener's question so you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Abby, Virginia. Wow, what a Virginia-heavy episode. Our guest is also from Virginia. This means something. I'm just not sure what. I don't know what, but keep going. (laughs) Hey, Gabby and Allison. I'm Abby from Virginia. I love your podcast and listening to you guys so much. I always feel like I relate to both of you from Gabby's queerness to Allison's mental health awareness. Listening to you guys has helped me through so much and learning about myself. My question today is specifically for Gabby, even though I, Allison, still picked it. So pretty cool. But I would love Allison's advice, too, on some of the mental health parts of it. I recently got back together with my partner. We had been taking a break due to some mental health issues and just spending time getting ourselves together, but stayed in touch during that time. And I told them that I want to be polyamorous, but I'm not sure what level or what my boundaries are yet. For some context, I'm a bisexual, pansexual woman, she, her, and my partner is queer and non-binary, they, them. We definitely have the privilege of passing as a straight couple by how we present ourselves, but our relationship is super gay. During our time apart, I spent some time dating and experimenting with polyamory and found that I love it. When we had the conversation of if we were ready to get back together, I told my partner this and they were super supportive. They have been in a poly relationship in the past. My issue is that I do not know what level of polyamory I want to do and what my boundaries are. I love the idea of us dating together. That I for sure want to do, but I'm not sure what level of dating separately I want. I know I could not have multiple serious partners myself. I don't have the energy for that, but I like the idea of casual partners. Gabby, could you share some of your story with polyamory, how you set boundaries, and give some advice for a newbie? And I would love advice on how to stay on top of our mental health together during this transition. Not sure if you want to, this is great. Not sure if you want to do this as a listener question or just topics. I am happy either way. (laughs) Just writing it out already helped me so much. Love you guys, Abby. That's really sweet. Thank you for producing the show for us. I appreciate it. Okay, well, well, I was in relationships in high school and college where I didn't know the word polyamory. I didn't know that was a thing. I thought it was like some defect or flaw in myself. But I always, whenever I had um, boyfriends, I would always be like, if you wanted to see other people, like that would be fine. 
And they would go, so break up? And I was like, no. And they would be like, so I could just like, what are you talking about? And I like, is this a trick? And I was like, it's not a trick. Like, I, if you wanted to like, they go like if you wanted to see people other than me but like still be boyfriend girlfriend that's fine i did not know that was a thing i that's just how i felt and so they were like okay and to me it actually kind of reminded me of the 50s where you would kind of like go on dates but you like had your steady or whatever so i think we mm. kind of weirdly regressed back to like this this other type of monogamy i think like our our parents may have actually understood polyamory in some ways so but then my boyfriend in college was like Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Lie to you. And I was like, no. And then he was like, so date other people, but lie. And I was like, no, tell me the truth. And so I had a lot of problems with people still not understanding that I was like, this is chill. So they would be like, okay, great. So, and, and what I wanted was just to know about it. And that's a different comfort level, right? So then I met comedian Mike Kaplan who was the first person I ever heard to use the word polyamory. And he was like, I have usually have like a girlfriend and then I hook up with other people. And I was like, what? That's a thing. That's a word. And then, I mean, look, this is a stereotype, but as a bisexual, it had been super helpful to me because if I, a lot of times would, I was dating cis men and I would want to, figure out my bisexuality, hook up with women, date women. And so I was able to do that. In some instances, the people I dated were uncomfortable with that. And in some instances, they were comfortable with it. And in some instances, they were mm, a little too comfortable with it. The way that my polyamory operates today is not the way it operated in the very beginning. Like everything changed as I had more experience and I got to understand myself more and understand what I, what I was interested in or what I wanted. I've been in relationships where it was we dated together. Now, a lot of these relationships were people who started out as monogamous and weren't necessarily were like, I'll give Polly a try because of you, but weren't necessarily Polly on their own time. And that for a couple of them, one, it sort of ended up being very exhausting for him. And in one instance, uh, my ex was like in a constant state of turmoil. Like whenever I dated was just like hysterically crying. So obviously not super sexy. Like I would go on dates, that person would be sobbing at home. I'd be like, you know what? I got to go home and deal with this. So I think, you know, people have different levels of comfort and you really have to get into the weeds about it. Like one of my exes and I had a full Google doc with rules. Like we would fill it out with like different rules that we had for each other. With which was like, you know, like, please use a condom with other people, um, you know, please like shower when you get home, like certain, you know, don't hook up with people that I know or things like that, which seems kind of like homework. And it is. And so, I mean, it's changed a lot over time. Like then I date I dated someone who arguably was perfect for me in a lot of ways because we were exactly the same. We dated and hooked up with other people. There was almost no jealousy. We were very, it was a lot of compersion, which is when you feel joy when your partner hooks up with someone else or you feel happy for them. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of jealousy. It could also even be that you're like turned on by them doing it. Whenever we dated other people, it was like, he could just go out and do what he wanted. And I'd be like, that's amazing. I have some movies I want to catch up on. Like it was very, there was no drama about it. It was super cash. So that's the only person I've ever dated where I think we were like 100% compatible in that regard. But it just changed. Like I've, I've had situations where I've had a boyfriend and a girlfriend where I've had, you know, multiple girlfriends. Like 
and it just changes. Like you just try trial and error, basically. Like obviously at a certain point, I, similar to you, Abby from Virginia was like, this is a lot to have multiple multiple actual partners. This is very stressful. I My days are being taken up too much. I have too much. My social calendar is just <laughs> too full. And um, so my partner now, uh, we're both, Mal came into it, also Polly. There's people that I meet up with or I talk to, but I'm like very open and honest. Like my my profile on uh, on dating apps is like, I am non-monogamous. I have a partner. Please do not talk to me if you are not okay with this. And then we have our own rules. Like we have our own be home by a certain time or my whole journey. This this is, and I'm talking about this spans a decade. Like it's not something that I figured out in a year or in two mm-hmm. years. It's taken a long time and it might completely change multiple times. I mean, there's... There's no set thing where you go, this is my boundary because things change. Also, like you might think something is fine and then it happens. And then you're like, I actually didn't like that. Mm -hmm. But the thing with that is that you can't then jump to like blame your partner, right? You have to like be working on it as something that is within yourself. So if your partner does something that was previously okay, you go, actually, that didn't really feel that good to me. You have to approach it with them in the conversation by being like, hey, like, I know this was okay and you absolutely didn't do anything wrong. I just realize now that I don't really like it. And it's tough. Like, I have friends who are poly who they believed it was it would be fine if the person dated someone else. And then, like, you know, they got into a a second relationship and the first person was like, I actually now seeing this in practice, I don't feel good about it. And that person had to dump the second person. Yeah, I guess that's my question. Like if your partner does something and then you realize that's that you don't like it, like, is it the expectation that that partner would then change the rules of what you'd already agreed on? Like how it's tough. It's tough. You have to real you have to talk about it. And it could be a case of like, I just feel weird about this and I need you to reassure me or I just feel weird about this and like we need to like talk it out. Um, It's frustrating. I get frustrated all the time. I don't like when the rules change, but I also know that that can happen. You know, I mean, everyone has their thing. I don't like exes. Mal doesn't care about any of my exes. I don't like Mal. Well, I don't like Mal's exes, but I I am suspicious of them. In what way? I just don't like them. But I guess I'm wondering, like, when you realize that you don't like something, is it because the fear is that Mal will leave you for them and that you won't be the primary partner anymore? Like, no. Well, Mal and I have gotten to a place where we're we're very it's very secure. Like I we sort of are like, where, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? But you have to, like, make sure that you can't just that polyamory is not just I go off and do what I want. Mm-hmm. Like you can't you have to talk to each other you have to like you know I I have a date tonight and I have to be like I'm going on a date like you know a few days in advance I was like I might have a date on Friday and it just like you know it depends on how everybody feels what's going on and who's the priority right like if I was like oh I have a date tonight but then like at like five you know knock on wood whatever but like at 5 p.m Mal gets the flu and Mm -hmm. is like oh my god I'm throwing up I'm so sick I'm not gonna be like well I had a date you know I'm gonna be like hey sorry my primary partner needs me like you have it's building priorities and making sure that the second person or third person or fourth person understands that they are not top of the food chain. For me, some people are are relationship anarchy. Some people are are solo poly, which is just they have everybody's kind of on the same level and there's no primary partner. 
I happen to have a primary and then and then other situations. So you might have a completely different Abby. You might have a completely different idea of what you want. You might you might end up, you know, being like, actually, I'm most comfortable if we were like in a throuple or I'm most comfortable if we were both dating this person. And even that can cause a little bit of problems, right? Like what if you and the other person go out to dinner and that person, your primary, you know, or you're all equal, right? There's no primary, but two people go out to dinner. One person's like, I'm sad and jealous. I feel FOMO. Like it's a constant conversation. And so I think you just have to come at it with like nobody's, ideally nobody's intention is to hurt the other person. Nobody's intentions are malicious. Nobody's intentions, like if your partner does something and you're like, oh, that actually made me feel icky. Like you have to come at it as like, I understand you did not do this to hurt me. Your partner has to see that your intention isn't to like control them and ruin their life. You know, like you have to come at it where like everybody is assumed to have good intentions. That's like kind of been the key for me. What advice would you have for Abby in terms of like, how do you even start to figure out what is the right way for you to go about it? Do you try all different things at once? Do you try one thing at a time? Like, how do you start that exploration? I think try date, maybe try dating together. But I also think like apps are pretty harmless. Like if you are on an app and you start talking to someone, I usually will start by like, it will like have a little bit of banter and then I'll start, I'll say, hey, I, I don't know if you read my profile. My Do you have questions about my situation? And then the person will either be like, no, I'm good. Or they'll be like, I do actually have questions. And then, you know, it depends on it depends on what your partner wants to know. So I think like starting slow or starting with like just talking to other people like, oh, I'm just like having a flirty DM or like whatever. And then see how the partner feels about it. See how you feel about it. There might be a thing where like sometimes I'll like be flirting and then it'll be like, I actually just want to hang out with Mal. Like it's not like a free for all. And I don't think you should do everything at once. I think. And depending on what your partner wants to know, you can run stuff by them. Like, hey, I've been talking to this person. What do you think about that? I want to see, like, if Mal likes someone, I'm like, show me pictures. I want to see, like, Mal is like, I don't want to know anything about them. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's very different. Whereas, like, the guy that I was dating in 2017 wanted to know everything. So you can have different rules for per person. Mm-hmm. And different people like have different levels. Like over the uh, last summer when I was seeing that other person, that person was like, oh, I would come over and like hang out with Mal. Like I have no problem. Mal was like over my dead body. So, you know, people have different <laughs> people have different levels of comfort. I think like you guys should start slow, even though you both have experience in it. I think you should start by just like talking to people, talking to other people, and then see like, how do you feel that I'm talking to this person? And and setting up rules too that, you know, I had a rule in the, initially with the person I was talking to last summer where it was like, I'm not going to respond to texts from this person while we're, while we're in bed about to go to sleep. Like while we're, you know, if you and I are laying in bed together, napping or anything like that, I'm not going to respond. Um, mm-hmm. And that was just like a personal rule. So you know, if they texted, I would say either say I can't talk right now or I would say uh, or I would ignore it because I had made the promise of like, you know, keeping that separate from like our bed. Like, you know, there's just like and it's rules you wouldn't even think, of. you know, it's rules you wouldn't even necessarily think of. But it's comes from like, OK, what is respectful? So 
trying to be respectful to the secondary people as well. You have to like be respectful of their time and you can't just cancel on them with five minutes notice. Like, you know, it's things like where you're just like, how would I want to be treated? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you got to allow yourself the grace for time to figure out what works. And then also like accepting that like what works today might not be what you want tomorrow or what your partner wants tomorrow. And then it's sort of a, a fluid relationship with polyamory. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. And then some people want certain, some people will like want to hook up once and then like disappear. You know, there's, there's certain elements of the person that I'm seeing tonight who I think is like more chatty and wants to like be more, you know, texting during the day. And I have to sort of be like, okay, you know, like even like the secondary people are all going to be different with what they're comfortable with mm-hmm. and what they want. So like, it's a lot of navigation, but yeah, I think like communication and going very slow, even though you both seem to think you have experience, but you don't have experience with each other's specific needs. Right. Well, I found that helpful and I have absolutely no <laughs> intention of becoming polyamorous. <laughs> if you want to submit your international questions, send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Catherine Bob Bugara. Stay tuned. between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we're asking Catherine bob majira some tough questions about her book poe for your problems uncommon advice from history's least likely self-help guru Catherine is a writer and journalist who has contributed to basically every place and so we wanted to talk to you about edgar Allan poe awesome i'm so glad to be here so what drew you to Poe? Well, we're from the same place. So he grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and so did I. And I encountered him as a child, like so many do. I heard The Raven in school, and I read his stories when I was in elementary school, just scaring the shit out of myself. And then as an adult, this was about five years ago. So I've always had chronic depression, uh, but this... It was late 2016, and maybe you guys can remember how it felt the world, like the world was going dark. And I just fell into the worst episode I've ever had. And over a couple of weeks, I got really into reading Poe again for the first time since I was a kid. He wasn't someone I had even thought about through, you know, undergrad and graduate school, even as I was studying English literature. But I picked him back up and I suddenly had this different experience where I realized his stories were metaphors for, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, and despair. And they were moving because of that. And then I started digging into his life because there are so many Poe biographies and the field is so controversial and disputed that I got drawn into that too. And it all kind of pulled me out of myself. And then, okay, so one night I'm having a beer with a friend of mine and I say, this is so strange, but Poe is cheering me up. And he said, that sounds like a book. And I kind of joked back. I was like, oh yeah, I'll write a book about reading Poe for self-help and call it How to Say Nevermore to Your Problems. And I wrote it down on a napkin. And so here we are a couple of years later. (laughs) I love all things that start by writing it down on a napkin. (laughs) Yes, a cocktail napkin. So what is the typical view that people have of Poe? And how is that a little bit skewed? Yeah, I mean, we kind of have a real one-dimensional association with him. Those of us who do know him, we think of him as just solely concerned with horror and the macabre and kind of writing these outrageous stories And we don't realize that 
those stories carry tremendous psychological insight that you almost can't believe someone was describing in the 1830s and 1840s. Even some of his scientific takes read as very prescient now. A lot of people think he even predicted the Big Bang Theory. So anyway, there's way more to the guy than we thought. And his life is even weirder than you may have heard and darker and stranger. He kind of had like a very tragic, a lot of tragic things happen in a row. Mm -hmm. And you kind of frame that as like that can be empowering. So how? It, what is the like crux of it for you? I mean, listen, I don't, not endorsing trauma is a great thing to happen <laughs> to somebody or lead to an artistic career. It's not that kind of bright sighting, but I, I have come to see Poe's career as explainable in terms of his childhood trauma. Like he lost his mom between the age of two and three. And the remarkable thing about that phase of child development is that children can perceive and absorb and feel a great deal, but their language skills aren't there yet. So they can't articulate their griefs. And for Poe, losing his mother at that exact age and then spending the rest of his life writing some of the most beautiful and powerful examples of grief and literature, I think you can almost explain his career from that instance of childhood trauma. I don't mean to <laughs> put a spin on that like, oh, it's such a hopeful message. But for those of us who have dealt with those sorts of things, it is in a sense maybe some light can come out of the darkest spots in our lives. I mean, in my own life, I got this idea, one of the worst moments I've ever experienced. So there's also an angle, I would say, outside of the trauma of using your weirdness, like leaning into the things that make you very strange, and maybe those will become the things that people love about you. Let's hope, right? <laughs> what was your relationship to self-help books before you wrote one? I've always had a really dubious view of them. I mean, in my experience, I've read plenty of them. I'm not anti-self-help just in general. There's been moments in my life where I would read 10 at a go trying to figure out how to change something. But a lot of times, maybe you guys have seen this too, they're kind of presenting an impossible standard where you have to be this paragon of virtue and you have to give 110% in your relationship and in your parenting or your career. And you have to be so fit and have you know a six-pack on top of these other things. And I just find that really tiring. For somebody in a dark spot, it's not that accessible of a message. Whereas Poe's message for us, to my mind, is that you can fuck up almost everything and still be a wild success, which I find way more heartwarming in its way. In his actual life, he wasn't very well regarded. Mm -mm. Can you talk about like his sort of series of, of career fuck ups? Yeah. So in addition to the mental health, arguable mental health problems, he also just kind of had an impossible personality. He was convinced of his own superiority and he couldn't get along with coworkers or bosses. So really from the earliest jobs he ever had, like the first one uh, at the Southern Literary Messenger, he talked his way into an editorship. He screwed that up within two years by writing vitriolic criticism of other writers that was basically an early form of internet trolling. <laughs> what? What do you mean? What do you mean? Okay, so he was writing in the 1830s were a chaotic information age, a lot like ours. There was this tech breakthrough that had led to this boom in publishing. And yet the journalism industry was incredibly unstable with like things coming and going very quickly, just like our own age. 
And Poe's strategy for getting attention amidst this chaos was, I'm going to say the meanest possible shit about your novel, and that will bring attention to me, just in the same way that trolls work now, where they're trying to provoke reactions. He would write these vitriolic articles and then get into fights with other editors as a strategy for increasing subscriptions to the magazines he was working for and to just making a name for himself. I'm not saying I totally endorse that behavior, but the fact that you can identify it in the 1830s, like even his colleagues would say he's striving to gain notoriety by the loudness of his abuse. It's a perfect description of trolling now. (laughs) Which is so funny because I think his you talk about like his most popular stories were essentially selling out. So what leg does he have to stand on? But can you talk about how he was selling out and those are the ones that we like love today? Yeah, there's a total teapot kettle issue here, which makes me love him more because he was a total hypocrite about these things too. So in his day, magazines and newspapers loved these sensational Gothic stories and Poe leaned right into that. They were the easier sell. He didn't want to do that. He had wanted to spend his whole life writing really pretentious, moony poetry, but he couldn't afford to. So he started writing these Gothic stories for the market, and yet he put his own spin on them. So it was, in a way, a brilliant market adaptation, which allowed him to eke out a living. At the same time, he put his own stamp on these things and did kind of insist on his own vision. But yeah, it was totally a sellout. (laughs) Like the Raven like wasn't even something that he particularly enjoyed? I mean, he thought it was brilliant, but he also, he told friends, like, I just wrote that to get famous. And it worked, (laughs) you know? It did make him a celebrity almost overnight. It was a pop hit, you know what I mean? Like, it was his one hit single. Wow. (laughs) When you're thinking about people reading this book, like, what are the main takeaways from the way that Poe lived his life that you think could be helpful for people to incorporate into their own? Well, I think you can insist on your own vision and bring your unique weirdness to your work, like whatever kind of work you're doing. And that can be the thing that becomes memorable about you. Also, during his lifetime, Poe made almost no money off these contributions to uh, magazines just because of the uh, IP law at the time, which is actually not that different from our IP law now, where giant tech companies absorb all the revenue from people uploading videos to YouTube or whatever. Anyway, financial success may be no indicator of your being a world-changing genius or not. I think it shows that you can use the darkest stuff from your life in your work, and then that can speak to millions of people across multiple decades after your death. And one thing I find really hopeful about him too is, I mean, I've just mentioned like how he talks so much shit himself, but also he was horribly maligned, as a lot of people know. Even his obituary was a complete hit job. And after his death, people just piled on, kind of because he had been a troll in his life. I mean, the knives came out when he died. People said he'd been possessed by the devil. They accused him of various sex crimes, which not, you know, credible accusations from men, other critics, that is. So they accused him of all manner of things, and yet this worked to his advantage. So maybe the lesson for us is you can be horribly maligned and talked about and gossiped about and an absolute outcast, and yet it can work for you. One of my absolute favorite things is 
other writers shitting on other writers in the past because I feel like nowadays and I related to the book a lot I read it and I feel like nowadays there's this thing of like everyone has to sort of in the public eye to sort of be kind to each other and like you can't say like I find this other book to be shit if you're like in the same sphere and then Mm. like in the back of the book it's like Mark Twain being like fuck this guy and like W.H. Auden being like fuck this guy and like all these people and the insults are can you talk about like the insults are so smart and biting and you can tell that they're just by other writers can you talk about some of like the best ones okay my absolute favorite is from wh Auden, which a lot of you will know is absolutely brilliant poet in his own right and he said poe's love life was confined to crying in laps <laughs> which is one of the worst things i can possibly think of um, a university president said he wrote like a man not accustomed to paying his debts oh wow there was one that was like he was brilliant in the way that someone before puberty is brilliant like just like yeah t.s Eliot saying that t.s Eliot. oh yeah. it's so funny i love it because i it makes my criticisms of other people's work feel like this isn't mean this is like a history you know yeah like kind of almost like a roast where it's both loving and also extremely pointed so literally people are being like he's the worst writer ever he's like you know oh this one i loved the poet of unripe boys and unsound men like put that in your bio (laughs) the funny thing is like in a way you could say that poe was being attacked precisely because of his success I mean, if he's such a second-rate, horrible writer, why do we still read him today? Why is he one of maybe the three writers, if you ask people to name, you know, writers in America? Like, you probably hear, like, Mark Twain, Stephen King, and John Grisham, and maybe Poe, too, because so many people know him. Like, the people recognize his face. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean he was a failure. It's a strange way to read the situation almost. But you can feel these folks snobbery, you know what I mean? What was something when you were researching the book, like about his life that was either like shocking to you or you were like, oh, this makes perfect sense. (laughs) So, okay, he had a mommy complex like no other. The whole the put down about crying in laps lands lands really close to the truth. Uh, His relationships were women with women were driven by his wanting to be comforted by them. I thought relatively clear to me that he wasn't necessarily trying to have sex with people. He more like wanted them to take care of him and pet his hair. So anyway, when he was an editor in New York in 1845 and The Raven came out, he became a celebrity overnight and he was married, but his wife was very ill and he started to get a lot of attention from women at parties and even through his editor job at the time. And so sometimes he started to correspond with them and it reads just like a DM slide now where they were basically flirting and then they would even publish poems to each other in the newspaper. So I think people don't know about his flirty writings on the side that probably never went into any kind of actual affair, but definitely were, definitely existed. And even editors at other papers would be like, what the hell is going on in 19th century terms, like publishing that in the paper. They would write basically like their sexts to each other, like publish it in the paper for the other one to read. Yes. And it was so transparent, too. Like she would write one of them, Francis, uh, would write poems like to EAP as if that were some <laughs> kind of disguise. And he did the exact same thing, like writing to the initials 
So you're just like, guys, everyone sees what's going on here. You're not hiding from anybody. It's like if you've ever observed somebody flirting on Twitter. Yeah. Or it's like it's like celebrities like being, you know, posting with it's like going Instagram official with someone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's funny how transparent that behavior is. I'm, you know, 170 years later, I kind of love it. Oh, I mean, his wife was dying, but still. Can we do a, a rundown of like the other thing that people say about him, which is like he married his 13 year old cousin. So let's break that down. Yeah, that, there's a lot to unpack there. So she was 13 years old. He was in his late 20s. So it wasn't the case that they were both teenagers. And she was his first cousin. He didn't even live in the house where she grew up. The reason I kind of have come to understand something about it is, A, it was not true that in the 1830s, girls routinely got married at that age. You had to have permission from a parent. And her mother did consent to her mother was goes on and consented to the marriage. The reason he wanted to marry her was because his parents were dead. His foster parents were dead. He'd lost his brother. They had lost multiple family members, his aunt and cousin. And at the time it was like their little household was going to spin apart. There was another family member who was going to take these ladies into his own household, like under his protection. And Poe basically threw a fit and threatened suicide unless she would marry him. So they got married, but the consensus of most biographers is that they didn't consummate the marriage for several years. And he kind of implied that in a short story, Poe. And then according to friends, it was a very loving, doting relationship. So I don't say like this happened, but it was fine. It's a complicated situation. And then parts of it are unclear. So to me, it seems his motivation was that he was trying to form a family at a moment of great loss. Wow. It seems like everything he did was just trying to find family. And when he didn't get that, it was throw a fit time. (laughs) Yeah, the infantile shrieking of that letter he wrote to his aunt and cousin, like, I have nothing left to live for. It is crazy how identifiable that is now, too. You know, when someone's like at their nakedest, most, you know, vulnerable place of need that is touching like the deepest issues in their soul. And they're just an absolute mess. <laughs> Poe is identifiably that. Wow. It's so funny that he is so popular and people like have tattoos of him and people like mm-hmm. the Baltimore Ravens are named after him. And he was such a shithead. Yes. A fuck up bigger than any in literary history that I have ever seen. I mean, everything he could screw up, he did. Every bridge he could burn, he burned. It just is so identifiable in some ways. Like, not if that's not you, like, that's you have a friend like that where, like, you know, you talked about he showed up to do a lecture and he just was like, didn't prepare and then was wasted. His wife died and he wrote like 800 pages on like how he thought the universe started and then through an event where he could read it out loud and everyone was like by hour four was like we got to get out of here like what (laughs) like what a nightmare person but so confident yeah and it's like at the same time a genius parts of eureka his total meltdown of a prose poem about the universe parts of it are so beautiful like some among the best writing you ever did, there's this whole metaphysical section at the end, which is batshit on one hand. And at the same time, like it's this beautiful vision of a world that will eventually be renewed and we'll all be together. But it was totally crazy. 
Do you think in your own work, it's just confidence? I, sometimes I feel like with art, it's like being shameless pays off in some ways. I, I think that's super true. One of the things that like, I feel Poe has taught me, I load self-promotion and putting myself forward. But you can see how that worked for him. Mm-hmm. Like his conviction in the value of his own work is in a lot of ways really admirable and contributed to his success in a huge way. And this is when he wasn't just puffing himself up and literally inventing heroic feats in his own past. Oh, yeah. Because he did plenty of that, too. <laughs> like he falsified his resume huge in huge ways. Right? I'm wondering like how you're going to apply like what you've learned in the process of writing this book to how you deal with the reception of your first book being out, you know, because that's such a vulnerable thing. Are you sort of taking a stance of like, fuck every reviewer or like, how does, <laughs> how does that influence it? I wish I could say it, that his help has brought me that far. It, I maybe got half the way there. Of like I can stick my neck out at all and deal with what comes or at least try to face it without crawling under my desk because it can work for you to do this sort of thing. Yeah, I wish I had the courage. Maybe I need to read my own book. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had the courage to go full on like throwing punches on social media and so on and getting myself into horrible feuds. I guess getting halfway there is is good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lost art to like literary criticisms or literary feuds. I think that it's interesting now I was talking to for another my other podcast. I was talking to some like young TikTokers who are I don't know how old you are, but I'm millennial. And I think like we sort of were like, oh, my God, stay away from any controversy Ooh, like anything could happen, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Gen Z is just like, I think, monetizing being bullied and like getting very into this like feud or like, you know, kind of they're sort of coming back around to what I saw in your book where they're like any press is good press. And I kind of recognized that. Yeah, I admire it when people do that, like kind of the world of beefing on TikTok and YouTube and so on. It was a little like, yeah, I'm an older millennial. And so I was never brought up to do that. I feel like I was kind of beaten out of me if I ever did have the instinct to. Yeah. But I noticed these, I guess, for lack of a better term, social media stars completely just making a career out of fighting with each other. And it kind of inspires me a little bit. No, me too. Because I feel like, say the truth. Like, don't kiss ass. Like, if you think Poe is a drunk idiot, then, like, say that. I don't know. I I think we've, like, risen these literary heroes to, like, this height of, you know, they're all sort of equal. And then when you read, like, Mark Twain being like, fuck Jane Eyre, you're like, <laughs> you know what? Yes, you were human. You were people. Like, you had opinions. It's way more illuminating and revealing. Like these people reveal themselves to be fully human, just like us and screwing up in various aspects of their lives. It's such more accessible message than this idea that you have to like approach them only in one vein of respectfulness and kind of a polite inquiry. Right? I think you can, it's not that I always practice it, but you can get a lot of, a lot of the way there doing impolite inquiry. What, how do you think he would feel today about the way that he's viewed in society? I think he'd be intensely gratified by how famous he is and how much influence he's had because he definitely thought he deserved it. He was kind of a snob about venues and genres and so on. He might not like 
how popular um, the culture is around a lot of his work to the fact that, you know, Britney Spears had a dream within a dream tour and Lou Reed covered him and so did Stevie Nicks. He might not like those manifestations because he was kind of like a high culture wannabe in some ways, but I think his ego would be incredibly satisfied. What are your thoughts on separating an artist from their life? So obviously he has some some problematic stuff, especially with the young wife. And, you know, like what, what as we learn more and more about our like, quote unquote, heroes, what are your thoughts on that? I think that it is a convention that largely came to us out of a certain school of literary criticism. Like you could call it something that grew out of new criticism where, oh, we see strictly no relationship between the product and the life. And that just seems to me like some weird social rule we observe knowing it's not true. I don't understand how you could grasp the work outside the context of the life. It's not that you can't enjoy it, but to really get it, it's depth and dimensions. How else would you get there? I don't know why we're forced to pretend like these things are not related to each other. They're obviously the most closely related things you could have. Maybe we do that too, because we want some plausible deniability in our own lives. Like, oh, I didn't write a book about Poe because I feel like a screw up. Uh, I wrote about it because I'm strictly interested in him from a literary history perspective. You know what I mean? That's obviously not true. And I think it comes through in their work. I mean, obviously, like, you know, it, it informs the biggest example that I see a lot is Woody Allen, where it's like, you, you go, well, I like the movies. And it's like, okay, in half those movies, his girlfriends are teenagers. So you really can't, like, it comes through in the work. And so I think, like, mm-hmm. it depends on, uh, that is more worrisome to me than, like, someone from the 1830s who was, like, kind of a fuck up. And I think, like, context and, like, the way it manifests in their work and also, like, I don't want to I'm not like here to be like cancel Edgar Allan Poe. Like, I just don't think that that allows us to engage with like what he contributed to the world in his art. Mm. But I think in a more modern sense, it does make sense. But yeah, I think it's afforded a lot of times to certain types of people like white guys or whatever. Right. And then like, you know, his contemporaries at the time who maybe were were not white guys maybe weren't like risen to the same sort of like, oh, well, he's just quirky. Yeah, I agree with all of that. This issues in Poe's life, I I can't even say that I have settled. I've taken a settled view of them after all this time. Like, I don't know that it's possible to take a settled view or it would be appropriate to take a settled view of something like marrying a 13 year old. I have my ideas about it and what I've come to think, but I would never say I'm absolutely certain I know what was going on there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there'd be more than one reason to cancel Poe if you wanted to. He's such a large institution now. His cultural influence is so vast that I don't even know how you would. Mm -hmm. Uh, To the point where, you know, he has 4 million Facebook fans and his work is constantly brilliantly reimagined by diverse filmmakers from Romero to Peele. Plus all this other influence that it's almost even hard to track. Like scholars generally agree that he has had more influence on Spanish language literature than any other American author in history, which is a strange thing given some of his, you know, stances. So I don't know how you make peace with that. 
it just depends on how much it matters to you. But I think broad strokes is not the way to go, especially with. And mm. I and I say that about like old. I mean, look, Hamilton. We made a whole musical of Hamilton and Hamilton owned slaves. Like what like what are we you know what I mean? Like I feel like it's way more complicated than people give it credit for or or want to engage with, especially with literary criticism. Yeah, like I question myself on this. I'm like, am I just lionizing another white dude? <laughs> but he was so strange and so unfortunate in his life that I think there's some mitigation there. Yeah. And what he's come to mean to people. Right. I think he, the weirdos of the world have felt very seen and comforted. Yeah, that's, that's putting it really well. It's an interesting concept because of to have him as like a, a figure in the self-help world, because do you think that he was miserable his whole life? <laughs> I think he was miserable for lots of parts of it. I mean, in a way, that's kind of the message. Through everything he experienced, he kept going and he produced reams of work. 2,500 pages in the Library of America editions, despite everything that he went through. And that's not to make like some claim that we should all be productive no matter what, but the sheer fact that he could do that is crazy and inspiring to me. Yeah. I always wonder about the difference between like my productivity and my internal world, you know, and like which holds more value in a way. Yeah, it's a super big question when I'm interested in myself. I almost want to see, in some ways, like to speak to that question, I think we need to diversify our self-help heroes with screw-ups and people who did things badly Mm -hmm. and went through shitty periods in their lives that didn't just, you know, in some positive or like some toxic positivity arc, like then everything was fine. It wasn't that case with Poe. He had moments of happiness, but his life overall was incredibly difficult. Yeah. And that's true for a lot of us. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. There can be pockets of beauty and brilliance throughout it, despite the hardship. Yeah, I, I like that. I agree. Would you like to um play a game show? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. Okay, great. So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions that you might have, and then you would tell me what you would do in that scenario. Um, you can either play as yourself or play as Poe. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Would you prefer? Play as yourself. Play as yourself. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? <laughs> Your partner of seven years goes on a yearly camping trip with their friends from college. You find out they spent the most recent trip sharing a sleeping bag and sleeping naked for the body heat with one of their very good looking friends. Would you stay with this cheater? They kissed a little in the middle of the night, but your partner was half asleep and thought it was you. What? Um, how long have we been together? Seven years. What's the deal with this friend? Just like a very good looking, cool, hip friend from college. Yeah, I just, I'm gonna have to go. Unless, <laughs> is the friend interested in me too or no? No. <laughs> But they're not, they say they're not interested in your partner either. It was just for body heat and then just a, a confused half asleep make out. Well, why didn't they bring enough stuff to keep warm if they camp all the time? It's very hard to keep warm, Gabby. I actually, it's not the act itself that bothers me. It's the shitty excuses and like, you expect me to buy that? Mm-hmm. That would be the reason why I couldn't stay there. 
Yeah. What they, What do you think my intelligence is? Right. There's the condescension in those excuses. In their defense, they make out with you in the middle of the night all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that changes everything. No, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, my God. But the other person doesn't really know that. So I feel like, hmm. No, I think they should. They the bad excuses. And I think they should know by now what to bring. So I got to go. I like that you're leaving because they didn't have a good camping packing list. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, come on. You camp all the time. You didn't bring enough stuff. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Catherine? No, I'm with you. I don't like these explanations, even with the middle of the night make out. Why was the other person receptive to that if it wasn't put across in some way like that might happen? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, it turns out that they also are used to making out in the middle of the night with their partner. They're both just like nocturnal maker-outers. So it's a bad combo. <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy it. This feels like some sort of long long con. Okay, but unfortunately, you never kiss ever again. By anyone? No, you never get kissed again. Just through a series of events after you lose them. Fine. That seems fine. <laughs> Are you becoming a nun at that point? No, you're just crying in a lot of laps. Yeah. (laughs) That's everybody's love life, right? Exactly. Okay, our next game. Is this a date? While at lunch, you complain to your coworkers about having to file your taxes because you hate doing it and always mess it up. Later that night, one of your coworkers shows up at your door to help you with your taxes in exchange for a drink and a snack. They majored in accounting. Is this a date? I think it's wonderful no matter what it is. Somebody else doing my taxes <laughs> is my fantasy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would ex- that I would call that a date myself react- proactively. What time of night is it? Seven. And they don't want dinner, they just want a snack? Yeah, because they thought it would be too presumptuous to require dinner. So they just would like a drink and a snack. I didn't know they were coming? No, it was a surprise. <sighs> what am I wearing? What? <laughs> what am I wearing? Am I in my PJs? No, you're in a jumpsuit uh, that's pink velour. It's a date. <laughs> <laughs> it's a date. And honestly, I might marry that person. And then you could have your taxes done for the rest of your life. Yeah, you get your taxes done for the rest of your life. Marry an accountant, baby. This is the life hack that Toden have to offer us, but is totally valid. <laughs> Forget the 13-year-olds. Got to marry someone who graduated <laughs> accounting school, baby. okay our final game are you a terrible parent your daughter 14 recently shaved their head as a fashion statement but now she is getting teased at school you decide to bribe your older daughter 16 into also shaving her head because she is very popular and you know if she does it people will stop teasing your younger daughter Your older daughter agrees to shave her head for a new car and the teasing stops. Are you a terrible parent? Wow. Can you afford a new car? Yes, you're very rich. I think it's a good example of getting things done then. Wow, (laughs) I'm really stumped. Thank you. I don't know. I think maybe you are a good parent. It's creative problem solving in a way. And being bullied at school is so awful that sticks with you the rest of your life. I can see kind of doing almost anything to get that to stop. Also, fuck these kids who are mad about a shaved head. Get mad about climate change, you dummies. (laughs) You know, 
I, I, I'm going to go with you're a good parent. This is very cool. Do you think I should, should I write it like a parenting book now, you think? <laughs> Look, if there's self-help books about Poe, write a parenting book, Allison. Give it a go. You don't have any children, but why not? <laughs> I would say that makes you even more qualified. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Perfect. Wow. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about what you're up to and also buy your book? Yeah, all right. Like everybody else, I have a Substack. It's called Poe Can Save Your Life. I have a website, katherine.mcgarrett.com. And then you can find the book anywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, bookshop.org. Uh, my local bookstore, Fountain Bookstore, is selling signed copies if that's a thing you're into. Aww. So anyway, I would love for you to check it out. And I hope it has a weird effect of cheering you up too. I'm sure that it will. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This was really fun. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about traveling. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. Baby. Um, hello, traveling. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. Some people obviously make traveling their entire personality. I'm a little jealous of those people sometimes because I feel like they know something I don't. Like they're more <laughs> organized or they're like better at planning or something. They've also, I guess, figured out how to like manage money in a way that I don't mm. know how to do. Yeah. Like no, like nomadic people, like people who are like, oh, I just I have like my, you know, studio apartment, but I'm mostly just like going around Europe or whatever. Who are those people and how do I become one? See, that's the thing is like I traveled a good amount growing up. Like my parents did a really great job of like having like great family vacations and I got to like go to different countries and it was like amazing. But then. As an adult, like I haven't traveled as much. And sometimes I'm like, is it strange that I don't care that much? <laughs> like you I, don't? Well, I, I do and I don't. Like I would love to go places, sure. But it's also like it's not like top of my list priority wise. And so I'm, and maybe part of that is that like I have to travel to New York quite often to see my parents. So like mm -hmm. just like I am on a plane often, but I'm just going home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, I guess we go to Mexico once a year. So but you go to the same place every time. That's what, yeah. I, that's what I mean. And so part of me has been like, is this some personality flaw that I have <laughs> that I'm not like planning these elaborate trips to like Norway or Australia? And like, am I missing out on some like experience by not traveling more? Or is that just like something I've been taught to believe that isn't true? <laughs> I don't think it's a flaw. It's different personality traits. I mean, I really want, I had trips planned and then the pandemic happened. So that sucked. Yeah. But uh, that super sucked. I was going to go, me and Mal had this whole thing for my birthday and then the pandemic happened and uh, I didn't get to go. So we had to cancel it and we never went. And then every like five days or so, Mal and I will be like, remember when we were supposed to be in Cabo? And then we're like sad <laughs> about it. There's so many things on my bucket list of travel that I want to do. I'm just like, I'm like so scared of like not budgeting correctly for it. Like, I really want to go to New Zealand. I really want to go. I've never been to Asia. I want to go to Tokyo is top of my list. Like, I have all these places that I want to go to. So a, a producer that I'm working with just went to Iceland and was sending me pictures. And I was like, oh, and he was like, I saw things that I'll never see again in my life. 
And like, I, it was so cool. Like what? Glaciers and stuff. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, like I feel like the world is so big and I've only seen such a small part of it. Yeah. And and I like I'm like, what is the point of the world being so big if I'm not going to like go and see like even like different cultures, like how to, you know, in Cheyenne used to go to Amsterdam all the time for work. So she's been to Amsterdam like four or five times. And she was like, they ride bicycles. There's pot cafes like she's like she's like the even the, the way that people live in the culture of these different places. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, like. I definitely had a bad travel experience. I would say I went to Paris in a manic episode in 2012. Um, You can read all about it in my book, Bad With Money. But even in my sort of like complete psychotic break, I loved the (laughs) seeing all the landmarks and I went to Versailles and I got to see the castle and, you know, all this this stuff that the palace or whatever. You know, I got to see all this stuff. I feel bad that I didn't prioritize prioritize travel in college because... Emerson had a program where you could literally go to the Netherlands for an entire semester. And I, I am a workaholic and I chose to stay and intern for at the globe, which I don't regret. But also part of me is like, you were like 20. Like it doesn't matter. It wouldn't have mattered another six months working at the globe, but in my head it really did. But I didn't get to, I didn't take advantage of the ability to just like pay my same tuition and live in the Netherlands. Like I, I regret that. I wish I had done it. Yeah. I, I feel like conflicted about it because it can be so expensive. And so it's like, do I prioritize this thing? And like, you know, also with my OCD, like I can't stay at hostels. Like I have Mm -hmm. to stay at a certain level of a place Mm -hmm. that is expensive. So I don't feel like unsafe in my own body. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So like, you know, when I think about it, like there is, I think I have like a lot of things, you know, like the idea of like going on a trip and changing hotel rooms every three nights. Like there is some stuff that is like anxiety producing for me mm-hmm. about that and like packing, repacking, pack, you know, and like, mm-hmm. and so I think it is like this thing I maybe I just haven't had a big trip in a while. And so I think it would be like kind of a good thing to like to do and push myself towards. But then I also feel like all the time I'm like, where do I want to go? And I like, I don't have like one clear top Mm -hmm. of my list place, which Mm -hmm. like makes it harder. And like we had thought of going to Costa Rica for our honeymoon, but you know, then he left. Um, (laughs) But no. So now it's like, do I still want to go to Costa Rica? (laughs) You could be in Costa Rica right now. (laughs) But like John and I were talking about Berlin. Okay. Yes. That feels like a city that would be really cool to see that like is artsy. I have this now. I have this fear of like planning anything that's too far in advance. When I was in my psychotic episode, uh, I went to Belgium and France and and uh, Madrid. And I was because of COVID now, I could never do what I did. I mean, I stayed with different people. Mm-hmm. I was staying with strangers. I like, you know, roamed around and did all this stuff. That was in 2012. With COVID, I could not the way that I went about that trip, I could not do that now. Yeah. And when will I be able to do that again? I know. So that's a whole other element of it is like, is it safe to do it? When will it be safe to do? Yeah. But I feel like I kind of need to just like maybe... I mean, it's hard also because I'm in school, right? So I don't have a lot of like free times in the year where I I know that I have time off. But part of me is like, should I just push myself to like make a commitment, book Mm -hmm. a trip and then like have that to look forward to? Because I think one of the greatest things about traveling isn't even the traveling itself, but the having something to look forward to. Yeah. You know, like the the six months before a big trip being like, oh, 
well, I'm going to Italy. So, you know, fuck all you people. (laughs) I want to go to Italy very badly. That was the last major trip I did. I think it was like 2014. I went with one of my college friends and that was my first time ever traveling internationally. Like, I guess I did my tennis teen tour, but (laughs) without my parents. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god you know my tennis teen tour where we played tennis right. in spain and france which was very normal <laughs> wow we didn't do a lot of international travel when i was a kid uh my parents we went to france because of with may may my grandmother mm-hmm. who's from there allegedly and we my parents i remember when when cheyenne and i were like maybe like eight and four whatever my mom was turning 40 for her birthday my parents went to Italy by themselves for like two weeks and just like left us with like I think like Grandma Lee or something and they and like they were just like bye and they went to Italy and like good for them like yeah they went all around Italy they had my mom still talks about it like it was like the best trip ever like they had such a great time and like so that was so I saw like international travel as like very like special like a 40th birthday present like a special thing yeah we also a cousin of mine had a bat mitzvah in israel and me and my family went to that so we went to israel and then when i was in college i went on birthright so i also went to israel again when i was like 20 which is like hard to talk about here because we don't have time to unpack all of that but i've yes i've been to israel twice over like a decade ago And so, like, those are the things that I've done. But I want to see the pyramids. Like, I want to do more travel that's just, like, me. I don't think I've ever traveled with a partner, with, like, a romantic partner. Mm -hmm. I went to Montreal with my ex in college, and and he got incredibly drunk, and it was a terrible experience. I don't think that counts. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it counts. But now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think I've gone on, like, an adult international trip. Should we put this on our list for next year? That we'll each try to do it. Where can we go because of COVID, though? How about in two years? (laughs) Yeah. Tokyo 2024. Berlin 2025. (laughs) I really, I want to go to Asia. I want to go to Japan and I want to just eat my way through Japan. I want to just like eat all the foods that they have and I don't care what's in it. I want to go to a restaurant and be like, what's their best thing? And then I want to have that. Mm -hmm. Like an Anthony Bourdain sort of situation. And I want to see The Hobbit. I want to see all The Hobbit stuff in New Zealand. <laughs> I got to figure it out. I wanted to go. You know, it's funny. Me and my ex wanted to go to Cuba. And my mom threw a shit fit. Oh, really? Yeah. I want to go to Greece and see the island from Mamma Mia. <laughs> you think they have like a Mamma Mia tour? I really freaking hope so. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> not just international travel mal and i have driven across the country twice and that was delightful yeah that's the other thing there's some places in the u.s i want i really want to go to new mexico i want to go to roswell new mexico is great i want to go to new orleans i've never been there oh new orleans is fun yeah i've done a lot of like nashville new orleans memphis Uh, a lot of those places are great I had a very lovely time in El Paso, Texas. I don't Ooh. know. I, Texas is really like on the chopping block right now, but that was a fun town. As long as you find a food restaurant that is like the top of that. So like in Texas, Mexican food or in New Orleans, like seafood, you know, something that is like the top of the line for that place. And you find like a gay bar, you're pretty much set. <laughs> I also think that like, In this time of COVID, like thinking about smaller trips, so just like weekend trips, just to like spice things up a little bit. 
But that's like a cool way to do it, you know, to feel like you're traveling, but you're keeping it kind of local and just changing your scenery and still having something to look forward to. Me and Mal for Mal's birthday two years ago, we went, I rented an Airstream in the desert and we just went out to the Mojave Desert and stayed in an Airstream and it was great. Yeah. Very isolated. We looked at the stars. It was so like hundred bucks. <laughs> Melissa, want to come on in and share your thoughts? Traveling. That's your full thought. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with traveling, I because I've lived so many places, I've been to so many places domestically Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I've gone like Italy's my favorite place that I've gone, quote unquote, abroad. But like at this point in my life, and this is going to sound very pretentious, but there's like a certain like amount of things that I expect when I travel and it's out of my pocket right now. Like I'm not in the tax bracket to travel the way that I want to travel. Wow, guys, that's sort of how I feel, too. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I had a great time. I stayed with friends. I I don't like that. I don't like staying with people. I like to have my own space. Mm -hmm. I like to be waited on. But they can tour guide you around. I don't like that. I don't like being in other people's homes. I don't like being on other people's time. I like to be on my own time, do my own thing. Wow. All right. When I was in Belgium, I met this guy on the train who's Australian and we were like, we were like, yeah, let's just hang out and like see the things together. So we were going around together. And then we went into a bar and we met like a 15 person Midwestern family and they were all wearing matching shirts because it was like their their vacation in Belgium, you know, their big family vacation. And they like took us under their wing. And for the whole day, they just bought us all our food and took us out to dinner with them. And like, got it was like a, it was like mom, aunt, uncle, dad, cousins, whatever. And then we, at the end of it, we were like, thank you so much. And they were like, oh, please, like you guys were by yourselves. Like your parents would do the same thing for one of our kids. And I was like, and it was just nice. It was nice. Like we just hung out. They bought us like waffles, pasta, beer. Like they were so lovely. Never talked to them again. <laughs> for me, I, that would be my worst nightmare. Being stuck with people from like someplace I've lived. And, and I know for you, that didn't feel like it was stuck. You were stuck. Like you were having a good time. But for me, I wouldn't like it. Yeah, I never talked to that guy from Australia ever again. I found a photo of us on my computer and I was like, oh, my God, Ben, if you're Ben from Australia and you met me on a train in Belgium and we hung out for a day, hit me up. (laughs) (laughs) Was must have been 2012. So, you know, almost 10 years ago. I feel like I've forgotten what it's like to travel. So now I kind of want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I went to San Francisco in 20. at the beginning of 2020 and really enjoyed it after having previously thought I didn't like San Francisco. So because of the hills, <laughs> you just have a fear of hills. Yeah, I'm just terrified of hills. Um, What do we rate this episode? I rated 11 out of 10 timeshares, baby. <laughs> I'll rate it 22 out of 17 difficult personalities. Mm-hmm. I'll rate it 30 out of 10. Justice for Abercrombie. Abercrombie's back and I will die on this hill. I've spent in the last couple months, I spent a lot of money at Abercrombie. And Does it still very smell cute. good in there? I don't know. I, I don't physically go anywhere. I haven't in years. So pandemic or not, they have such cute clothes now that all my summer clothes are from Abercrombie. Wow, really? Yes. And it's very inclusive too. 
Really? Yeah. They have like very short to like tall and plus size curvy. We like, are not sponsored by Abercrombie, but if Abercrombie wants to come on and spot, please. I would like to be. That's a big pivot. That company did not used to yes. be inclusive. I mean, they fired like everyone and then rebranded completely. They're very I'll different I'll DM now. them. When this episode comes out, I'll DM it to them and be like, do you guys want to give us money? Great. I'll have a, <laughs> I'll have a picture of me posted in full Abercrombie. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you to Catherine Bob McGarra for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz, Abercrombie & Fitch's newest model. <laughs> <laughs> Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or on our own YouTube channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I know you are just forgetting or you are like, oh, I meant to do it and I didn't do it. Please leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show. Also, I heard that you should be promoting your Patreon on your podcast. So Allison has a Patreon for Emotional Support Lady. Um, so go do that. So I just, I had a meeting with the people from Patreon and they told me to do that. So... Okay, thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Forever. <laughs>